0: Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best selling book, Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by ICON Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for October Fourteenth, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk with journalists and scientists about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week we have news intern Jacqueline Kwan. We talk about how to build and where to put high performance computing facilities when waters are rising and fires are threatening. Where are we supposed to put these supercomputers when climate change is coming? Spiders are also on the agenda today. I talk with researcher Kazuharu Arakawa about collecting spider silks and the genes that code for them and then connecting these sequences to the properties of the silks in order to harness this amazing material for industrial use. Now we have news intern Jacqueline Kwan. She wrote this week about new considerations for where to put supercomputers in the age of climate change. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, sure. This is a super interesting topic. But maybe just remind us what are supercomputers for and who uses them?
1: Well, supercomputers are really used by the entire scientific research community, pretty much. And they're used for loads of things. So whenever we want to run a weather forecast, we use a supercomputer. When we want to model a lot of new drugs, that's using supercomputers as well. If you want to model robotics or have new sensory systems for robotics, that's also using supercomputers. It's really hard to identify a single field in science that isn't touched by supercomputers in some way.
0: What brought your attention to this issue that they might be affected, you know, in a special way by climate
1: change? I was just talking to a source who works in energy efficiency for high-performance computing. And she just mentioned, you know, offhandedly that lots of supercomputers are actually deeply impacted by climate change. And it's one of those things that's kind of common knowledge in the industry itself, but not really known outside of it. And yeah, so we kind of have this popular understanding of supercomputers as these things that are isolated to like the basement somewhere, completely isolated from the world. But that's just not true. They're deeply affected by the environment. And so, yeah, I thought this was such an interesting story.
0: Yeah, I mean, and climate change has so much to offer in terms of threats. We have rising waters, flooding, more fires, more extreme storms, higher temperatures in some places. Which of these things is particularly bad for a high-performance computing center?
1: Particularly, it's probably the rising temperatures and rising humidity levels in lots of these areas uh, where supercomputers are being sited. One really important consideration in supercomputing is how you cool your supercomputer supercomputers are these really powerful machines and they produce a lot of waste heat. And in order to continue having the supercomputer operating at its maximum capacity, you need to be able to cool that supercomputer down really effectively. And you know, rising temperatures and rising humidity levels is making it harder and harder for lots of operators to get rid of that waste heat into the environment. So you can't just turn the air conditioning on? Oh, yes, but the air conditioning is going to cost a lot of energy. So there are loads of supercomputers that have relied on, I guess, more sustainable methods of cooling, where they just site themselves in like historically cooler areas. This looks like maybe Berkeley in California, really close to the coast, that historically had quite cool, quite dry air. And so it was rather easy to just you know pump this hot air out into the environment and cool the computer that way. But with California, you know, having record-breaking humidity levels and record-breaking heat waves every year, that's just getting harder and harder.
0: It would be really expensive then, energy-wise, money-wise, to run a super powerful air conditioner and just point that at your supercomputer.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, now lots of supercomputers basically have to design for the worst days of the year. So it's not even that you have to build this really powerful air conditioning system that you run all year round. It's that you have to build this super powerful air conditioning system that you run maybe five to 10% of the year. And the rest of the year, it's kind of just sitting there shut off. What are we going to do then? What are some of the solutions?
0: Are we going to just move supercomputers north?
1: Yeah. So we're seeing lots of changes. And so there are lots of supercomputers that have thought 10 to 15 to 20 years in advance and are making pretty substantial changes. If you look at the supercomputing center in Los Alamos, they invested pretty early on in a water treatment system. So because they're located in New Mexico, climate change has, has a particularly bad effect on the availability of surface water. So water is also one of the a really significant way that supercomputers get rid of waste heat And Los Alamos basically said really early on, you know, water scarcity is going to be a problem in the future. We don't want to be adding to that problem. And so now they invested in a really great water treatment system that basically treats non-potable water and reuses it for evacuating waste heat from the supercomputer. And we also see for other supercomputing projects in the future, yeah, a lot of them are moving up north to Nordic countries as well as Canada.
0: So interesting, Jacqueline. But what if, the supercomputer can't move it if it's near a particle accelerator or some other, you know, it it has to stay where it is.
1: Yeah. So loads of these supercomputing centers handle pretty sensitive data. So maybe they handle stuff related to do with national security. So we see this with both Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore supercomputing centers. They have really... Robust physical security systems built around a lot of their laboratories. And so you can't just displace that and move to the north as easily as some of these other data centers, maybe. And so because of that, they have to come up with a load of other ways to keep a lot of their supercomputing facilities more sustainable. So Lawrence Livermore is currently investigating whether or not it's feasible to build underground. So the way that they explained it to me was that they compared it to a wine cave. I guess, you know, like wine caves are kind of common in California. So that's the analogy they used. So yeah, building underground, building into a hill makes humidity control and temperature control so much easier.
0: Right, and what about other kinds of dangers associated with climate change? For example, you know, more fires—is that something that we'd actually have to worry about for supercomputers?
1: Oh, yeah. So we actually have to worry about the two extremes: so monsoon season uh, and typhoon season, as well as wildfire season in some parts of the world. So in wildfire season, what we see with the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center—quite a mouthful, NERSC in Berkeley—is that wildfires happening. About 200 to 300 kilometers away, that created a lot of air pollution and that air pollution traveled downwards to where NERSC was located. And that meant a lot of the air that the supercomputing facility was using to circulate and evacuate heat from their system was suddenly polluted. And if they continue to let that pollution, that soot, that smog into their system, it would have really damaged a lot of their computers. So they had to just shut down the external circulation system and just use internally circulated air.
0: I could definitely see how typhoons
1: would be a danger to a supercomputer. Oh, yeah, definitely. This was a problem in weekends. So that's in Kobe, Japan. Already quite hot, quite humid, but of course they have pretty intense typhoons and monsoon seasons as well. And so what happened over there is that a substation that delivered really high voltage power, the type that you need to power such a powerful supercomputer got flooded. And it just basically meant that they had to go down for a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. While they repaired the power substation. Mm
0: -hmm. What kind of impact does it have on, you know, scientific enterprise when supercomputers are just no longer online?
1: Of course, like that's the most severe example. So uh, what we see probably would happen more is that, you know, you kind of build your supercomputers with a throttle. So instead of running them at full capacity all the time, uh, maybe you would have kind of an inbuilt break in your supercomputing system so that maybe they, they handle fewer jobs. Maybe they just underclock a lot of their processors as well, when they don't need to run at 100% computational power at all times. This just means maybe computation power or computation time for lots of researchers just gets a bit longer because the supercomputer isn't working as fast as it usually does.
0: And that's to reduce heat or like, for example, if they have to balance electric load and they're sharing with you know everybody else on the grid.
1: It's a little bit of both. So if they can't evacuate all the heat from 100% computation, that means they can't run it 100% computation. So maybe they have to slow the supercomputer down a bit. The same with electricity. If places like California are going through a drought, or a heat wave, lots of people are going to be turning on the air conditioning. And this means that the grid probably isn't able to deliver as much electricity to the supercomputer as it usually would. And so this means, you know, like they probably also shed some of the electric load as well, have to run the supercomputer a bit slower it does sound like
0: supercomputers are going to be harder and harder to run and maybe super isn't going to be possible anymore. Maybe like 80% of super.
1: Yeah, yeah. I probably don't agree that. I think that's probably a bit extreme. I think what's more likely is that they are going to be much trickier to design, but then we also see a lot of readiness inside like the industry and the scientific community to have a lot of like support auxiliary systems because data and supercomputing is, basically the next generation's utility data is going to be like electricity like water for scientific research and because of that we have to build bigger
0: no i really like how you talked about data as the like lifeblood and the future of science i think it's very true but kind of stepping away from the scientific enterprise. I mean, this is just a microcosm of what we all have to be thinking about to make our lives livable going forward through climate change. You know, do you feel like there are some lessons or crossover for all different kinds of science or
1: cities? Do not learn from the to learn from this? Oh yeah, definitely. So, a lot of the design principles that are now being considered really heavily and seriously by supercomputing facilities they have to be considered for basically every building that's sited in a place really affected by climate change. A lot of buildings have their cooling systems or heating systems basically perfectly tuned to the environment they have right now and not perfectly tuned to the environment probably that we'll see the next 10 to 20 years. And so I think that this kind of future long-term planning is going to be far more present in our lives in the next few years coming forward.
0: Thanks, Jacqueline. Thank you, Sarah. Jacqueline Kwan is a news intern at Science, and she's based in London. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Kazuharu Arakawa about his Science Advances paper on collecting spiders and their silks from all over the world. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peace building, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast Network of International Researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. If you look closely at a spider web, you'll see it's made up of different kinds of threads or silks, different gauges, and of course, they have different purposes. Each type of silk comes from a different gland on the abdomen of the spider. And some spiders can make seven kinds of silk, each with distinct properties. This Week in Science Advances, Kazuharu Arakawa and colleagues wrote about creating a standardized silk comb basically categorizing different kinds of silks and their properties in order to better understand these amazing and useful materials. Hi, Kazu.
2: Hello, Sarah.
0: What's so special about spider silk? What properties of this material make it useful? What are, you know, desirable? And what are some of the problematic areas in spider silk?
2: Spider silk's a very fascinating material that extremely tough at the toughness level, which is almost unprecedented in um, human-made materials. A tough material in material science is a term which explains the property of very strong material, which is also at the same time elastic. We humans use very different types of materials, but most of the materials are usually only stiff or only elastic. So for example, steel, rock, or carbon fibers, those materials are very strong and sometimes very light. But they're not really elastic, they are not brittle, they are strong, but they don't stretch as much or at all, maybe. On the the other hand, some of the elastic materials like the rubber or nylon or polyester that are made out of oil can be very elastic and flexible, but they're not as strong as materials such as like steel. But spider silk is a very unique material, which is strong, but it is also elastic at the same time. This gives a very unique property that the material can be used as a structure, but at the same time, it can be used to absorb shocks that are introduced into it. So, for example, consider making material for car parts, which must be strong to hold in the structure of the cars, but it can also absorb the energy when the car is hit by something else or the car hits into something else.
0: What don't we know about this world of spider silks? Are there many unexplored types of silk, many kinds of species we haven't taken their silks and taken a close look at them?
2: The spider silk gene itself is a almost a nightmare to um, analyze because it's extremely long and it's also very repetitive. So before our analysis, there were only like dozens of sequences available in the public databases in full length. But now in our project, we've sequenced 1,000 spiders and we have more than 10,000 spider silk genes. In our database that can be used to produce from a very strong, end, strong and um, not elastic end of the material to very elastic and sometimes that strong to a very tough material. We almost cover the entire property space by our uh, 1,000 represented spider silks.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the genetics. You said it's very difficult to do reads on these spider silk genes, but are there many of these genes? Is there one gene? Like, how, how? What do we know about the genes that code for
2: silk? Since we know that there are seven types of silks, we already knew that there were seven different genes represented for each of the silks. But we didn't know how much of the paralogs, uh, which are these copy of the genes in the genome.
0: The paralog?
2: Yes. So we actually didn't know how many of the paralogs are present for each of the uh, silk genes. And if there were other types of paralogs outside of the seven silk types. Now we kind of have the idea of how many genes are there in each of these species or each of the spider families. We actually found that there are quite a lot of duplications and diversifications of the drug-line silk genes in the orb-weaving spiders. Orb-weaving spiders are the spiders that make the orb-webs.
0: Oh, the orb weavers, yeah. You
2: know, the circular webs that you usually see on the outside in the fields. There are only a limited number of spiders that actually make the old webs, and other spiders are mostly ground hunters.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised to learn that, you know, you think spiders, you think, oh, there's a web up on the wall, there's a web in the garden, but they're actually doing all the different kinds of things on the ground with silk. Yes. You mentioned that your focus was on dragline silk. So let's spend a second talking about, you know, the different types of silks that spiders make, what their purposes are, and why you focused on dragline.
2: A lot of the silks are the components of the old webs. The dragline is also used as the frames of the old webs. And the dragline, the easiest way you can imagine is the one that uh, Spider-Man produces. (laughs) So Spider-Man uses the spider thread to jump around the buildings. And um, that is a drag line, so it's it 's the spider silk which the spider hangs onto the trees, travels around it, like scaffolds, or sometimes small spiders use those drag lines to use it as a balloon, and they fly off in the air to move to remote places.
0: I just think it's really interesting that they already have an array of silks, an array of properties that serve an array of functions, and there's this relationship between properties of the silk and how it 's used and It seems like with what you did in this paper, you want the same thing, but on this much larger scale, all spider silks and all properties. So, of course, you couldn't do all spiders. You have about a thousand species of spiders and you got the transcriptomes there. So you're able to look at what the spider silk genes, you know, what they're doing. But then you also looked at the properties of the silk from what 400 or so spiders you know what properties were you specifically looking to measure and to connect up with
2: the genes the very important thing is that all of those different types of silks i mean silk genes are homologous the genes are derived from the common ancestor so the spiders have evolved to be spiders on on earth like 380 million years ago at that time there were only one species of spider And that spider presumably produced only one type of silk with only one type of gene. But that evolved over the 380 billion years and diversified into very elastic silk or into um, very strong type of silks. So the idea is if we can track back the history, track back the evolution of the spider silks, we can learn what kind of amino acid changes can contribute to mechanical properties. So that was the key motivation of this research that we wanted to answer. So when we want to backtrack that evolution, we cannot build a time machine to go back to 380 million years ago to look at the initial sequences, but we can look at the diversity of the different spiders and also the spider silk genes in the current taxonomy. And when we measure each of those spider silks, there are very strong silks and also there are very weak silks. And when we compare the amino acid changes, we can identify what kind of amino acid changes are contributing to those different mechanical properties.
0: Yeah. I actually took a peek at the spider silk home database. Oh, yes. It's very cool. There's so many spider pictures. <laughs> There's electron microscopy of the threads. You can just sort a table of all spiders in the database by how strong their dragline silk is. It's pretty amazing, actually. So how are you able to get silks from all of these kinds of spiders that you
2: included in your study? In order to collect 1,000 spiders, we cannot only do it in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we have to travel around the world. We can only get like 500 species in Japan out of the 1,500 described species. So we have to travel around the world, and to travel around the world, since we have this biodiversity issues of biosamples samples bringing out of countries, we had to have local collaborators so that we can obtain samples in foreign lands, also get the proper permission and acknowledgement from the government. That's actually quite fun, traveling around many different forests and jungles all over the world. So we've forcibly silked the spider silks from the catch spiders in labs. And also we've extracted DNA and RNA in the labs and sent those materials back to Japan for the analysis.
0: I thought it was really interesting that the conditions when you call it silking, right? Like taking the silk from a spider. Yes. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> When you're silking a spider, the conditions need to be highly controlled. Like, why is that?
2: Right. So spider silks are silked and reported in many different papers in many different labs. And the conditions, machines, and sometimes temperature or humidity can uh, have a profound effect on the uh, spider mechanical properties. But these are not controlled all the time. So I think it was really important that we obtained the data in a single lab. So it was actually um, Nemata's lab, the corresponding author of this paper. So since we've measured every single spider silk collected in this database in his lab with control equipment and control humidity and all of everything, we can actually compare the mechanical properties along with the sequence.
0: So you looked at these important properties like what strength and elasticity. What other things did you take into consideration when measuring the properties of the spider silk?
2: The mechanical property like um, toughness, strength, elasticity... And also, we've also intensively measured effects of the water because spider silks are known to be affected by the water. So we've measured a, a thing called the super contraction, which is if you have a silk pajamas, <laughs> when you wash it in uh, washing machines, they kind of shrink a little bit.
0: Yeah, I saw that extreme super contraction could be sixty yes. percent shrinkage. That's not good. Right. And it doesn't recover when you dry it out.
2: So there are things called the primary contraction and secondary contraction. And the secondary contraction is reversible, but the primary contraction is not reversible. And out of the 60% of the super contraction, about 50% is the primary contraction. Oh, wow. And other 10 is the secondary contraction. So you can only recover 10%.
0: <laughs> Those pajamas are going to be 50% too small forever.
2: <laughs> yeah, so if you buy it for an adult, it's going to be for your children. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you, you measure these properties, and you have these gene sequences, and you have these spider families that have different relationships. What kinds of trends were we able to see, you know, connecting the properties of the silk with the gene sequences?
2: The orb-weaving spiders tend to have a very strong silk, which was expected, but it was statistically shown in our data since we've controlled all of the uh, measurement techniques. Our initial surprise was the diversification of the Masp genes. Previously, the drug-line silk protein is thought to be composed only Masp1 and Masp2 paralogs, but we recently reported another paralog called the Masp3 last year. And the existence of Masp3 is one of the most critical factors in defining the strength of the spider silk.
0: What about? Super contraction. Were you able to pin down how that related to different sequences or different parts of the sequences?
2: Yes. So likewise, uh, the um, existence of Masp three for the toughness, we've identified certain groups of the Masp two. So some kind of specific motif which is abundant in the orb-weaving spiders of the Masp two is uh, highly contributing to the supercontraction. And we've also identified specific motifs which could be contributing to MASP2, which uh, needs further confirmation by making some artificial MASP2 gene, eliminating those sequences probably to look for actual uh, loss in the supercontraction.
0: You're building up a library or a language of spider silk sequence motifs. So what parts of these repetitive genes contribute to which properties so that then you can edit them is that the idea next steps
2: yes so we actually have a table which clearly shows each of the top contributing motifs for the positive effect as well as the negative effect the idea is you can simply eliminate the negative motifs and introduce positive motives so that you can enhance the mechanical properties of interest you
0: can kind of optimize a silk not just copy what nature does
2: Mm -hmm. yes yeah that's the idea very cool
0: So what made you get into, are you a spider guy first, a materials guy first, a genome guy (laughs)
2: first? Yeah, so I'm more of the genome guy. (laughs) (laughs) And my main target organism is actually uh, tardigrades, which are also very interesting as well. Yes. (laughs) And my idea is to use these different omics analyses like the genome, transcriptome, proteome, and metabolome analysis, which can be used regardless of the type of the species. So we don't have to concentrate on the so-called model organisms, like mouse, yeast, or humans, but we can also work on very other strange animals. And that really fascinates me. But the reason I started using spiders was actually that our students in the Institute for Advanced Biosciences, at University, started up a company to produce the um, spider silks artificially. This paper itself also involves some of the um, members of the uh, company, but it is done purely as an academic basic science. And we make all of the uh, public available.
0: Yeah. Now, would you do something similar for tardigrades? Do they make something that you want to explore the properties of?
2: Actually, yes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. We've seen likewise many different genomes of tardigrades. And uh, we found very unique taligrase-specific proteins, which form into gels. So it it has, not similar, but other types of uh, protein kind of material, which could be useful. Taligrase can dry up and rehydrate to regain the activity. But when the cell is dried, it has to hold all of the membranes that are in place. So they cannot sustain at the absence of water. But these gels trap those in place so that the cell can be held in place even without the existence of water.
0: You study genetics, biology, so much stuff. Do you read science fiction about these topics?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot. Yes. Oh, you do? Yes.
0: What do you like that relates to what you actually study?
2: You know the uh, novel called uh, Three Bodies? It's a Chinese novel, it was science, Chinese science fiction, which was quite big two, three years ago.
0: Oh, I'll have to check it out.
2: It's about the remote, I mean, imaginary remote planet, which dries up in seasons. And so the humanoids living in that planet has accustomed to the planet so that they can dry up, but they can, they can rehydrate. So it's a
0: tardigrades. <laughs> this is so similar to your tardigrades. That's so great.
2: Yeah. So it was really exciting. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's a great answer. Thank you so much, Kazu. Thank you very much. Kazuharu Arakawa is a professor in the Institute for Advanced Biosciences at Ko University. You can find a link to the Science Advancers paper we discussed and the spider silcoms database at science.org/podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org/podcast. Or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.